Hello, this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, our wonderful guest is Catherine Ryan, and she's the VP of Communications at Novica. In just a moment, she's going to tell us all about Novica and share a little bit about her story. And uh, we'll be right back with Catherine. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. This land was made for you and me. As I went walking. Welcome back to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And I always like to remind folks that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And um, we're going to hear from Catherine right now. She's our guest this evening. Catherine Ryan is the VP of Communications at Novica. Hello, Catherine, and thank you so much for being on Heartstock. Hi, Carol. Thank you for having us on the program. We're honored to be here and appreciative of the conversation. Indeedy. And can you tell folks who aren't familiar, probably many of our listeners know of Novica, but um, for those who don't, what is Novica? Novica is a platform for artisans around the world to sell handcrafted goods. So it's all fair, fair trade, all handmade, handmade jewelry, ethical apparel, handmade home decor, and um, incredible uh, selection of um, handmade gift boxes, these types of things um, from artisans in remote regions of the world. It's it's really a fascinating uh, place. And uh, with each item that's offered for sale, you also get to learn about the artisan, read their biography and learn a little bit about their life story. And it's just fascinating way to learn about different cultures and to find beautiful works of uh, handmade art by by master craftsmen. It's really a, a unique platform um, that helps bring the artisans directly to customers. So cutting out multiple layers of international middlemen that, you know, typically inflated prices and resulted in artisans earning very, very little, the creators of products. And, uh, you know, as, as those products work their way up through multiple middlemen, reach you know destinations like the United States and were sold at much higher prices and this uh, historically has left artisans generally around the world living in in poverty or in, in, in often in very uh, bad conditions so the idea to help um, bring artisans directly to the world market and showcase them as individuals and offer their entire collections online it was a very novel concept when we launched in 1999 and year 2000, uh, it really hadn't been done f- before in the way that we did it. And um, it's just continuing to thrive and grow. And it's a, you know very exciting. We work with uh, thousands of artisans all over the world. And we'd love to hear about what you did before you came. And it's um, Novica as opposed to, as opposed to Novica. Is that right? My- we can say it. Anyway, and it's kind of a word designed to be like that with the Latin word, uh, root of new. Okay. Because it was a new idea. Um, but uh, yeah, Novica, Novica, it's N-O-V like Victor, I-C-A. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's meant to be pronounced in uh, easily in any language. So what drew you to Novica and what did you do before? 
Um, I was a journalist um, working for many years, um, focused mostly on human rights. I traveled the world and uh, freelanced human rights stories and travel stories and culture stories. So that's how the founders connected with me. Um, they had read a number of my stories and just felt we were a great fit. And originally, when they were planning the launch, uh, they said... Uh, it was the early days of blogging, you know, there were very few blogs and internet was still, still relatively unpopulated. I mean, there was quite a bit of it, but, you know, e-commerce wasn't so huge yet in that early 2000 era. And uh, the idea was for me to travel the world as I was already doing and meet with artisans and interview them and share their stories on a blog. And um, that blog became quite popular. And again, there wasn't a lot of competition in the blog world at the time, but people love to follow the stories of the different countries that I went to and the artisans that I interviewed and the adventures that unfolded along the way. And so that was my early days of Nautica. And we've really streamlined that now. You know, as we've grown, I handle, I kind of oversee all the editorial content, which is quite significant on Nautica because we really try to uh, also educate as well as sell products. So uh, we're always having new blog posts about uh, world cultures and different arts and the making of and videos showing people how things are made. And I work mostly from home now, actually, in California. And I don't travel as much as I used to, but I get to travel virtually now thanks to Google Meet and Zoom and meeting with artisans and our team members around the world. And what gave you the travel bug. It sounds like that was something that you were kind of well entrenched in before you joined Navica. Yes. Well, my mother was kind of an earlier woman aviator, not quite as early as Amelia Earhart, but she used to race <laughs> airplanes across country solo, and that was quite an unusual thing for women to do. And then my father uh, loved to travel, and we ended up living on the road for several years of my childhood and just traveling all over the U.S. You know, just it was really eye-opening to see in, in our own country uh, different cultures and people and ways of thinking. And I think that really created, you know, broader horizons for myself and my brother. Yeah, I just kind of grew up maybe with a open and interested mind in terms of travel and culture. And then, of course, National Geographic magazine that, you know, we waited for that every month. Oh, my goodness, we were obsessed with it. And that definitely inspired a lifetime of travels and interest in other cultures and opening our eyes, you know, beyond our own neighborhoods to uh, different ways of life and thinking and arts for sure. And so, yeah. There are so many people doing that these days. And of course, influencers blogging about it and uh, posting all kinds of wonderful videos and images of their experiences. You're pretty ahead of your time, your, or your family was, it sounds like. Yeah, it seems so. Yeah. And now it's so exciting for me as a travel loving person to follow some of the vlogs now of young people who are doing, you know, similar adventures around the world. You're right. It's become such a, I mean, really social media has made us such a more inclusive world in many respects. And at least we have the opportunity to be and to learn about other people and, you know, be inspired by so many people doing fascinating things and reaching beyond their own uh, regional boundaries. So, yeah. And it's not just geographically expanding, it's mind expanding, or at least I can say every travel experience I've had has been like that. It's helped me to think in new ways. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think that travel 
it really is one of the most fundamental aspects of education. You know, we can get degrees and become very well educated with textbooks, but it really isn't until we step outside our own boundaries and see and experience other ways of life and thinking that our education really becomes more complete. And, and I don't think we ever finish learning, you know, because in a lifetime, we really can't discover everything and meet everyone that has a different story to tell and a different way of looking at something. So I think travel is fundamental to education. And I think it's wonderful that so many people are traveling. And mm-hmm. Did your family travel internationally or was it just within the, U- the U.S.? Together, we mostly um, traveled together in the United States. Although we did live on a working freighter in the 1980s, I was, I think, nine or 10. And we spent uh, part of that year living on a, a working freighter before that was done. I think it's now something you can actually sign up to do. But we were on a very grimy, dirty, large freighter that went between Miami and the Virgin Islands and the Turks and Caicos Islands and the Bahamas. And it was a Bahamian registered vessel. So all of our crew were Bahamian and the dialect was very, very strong. I remember my dad couldn't understand what anybody was saying. And so at nine or 10, I became the interpreter. (laughs) Uh, You know how kids just pick up dialects and languages so fast. Indeed. I remember we'd be in the grimy galley myself, you know, at that age and you know, the workers and we'd all be playing cards. And it was it was just an amazing adventure. Again, just a deep dive into a completely different culture. And so um, as a family unit, that was really the only time we um, went beyond the borders. All the other rest of my international travels were mostly solo after that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit. When you started traveling uh, and do, having your own in, international adventures, Can you share some of the highlights and and what you learned from that? Well, let's see. I mean, I went to UC Berkeley and when I graduated, I went straight to Spain. I'd fallen in love with flamenco guitar. So I just thought I was going to go to Spain and write, you know, my my own Hemingway novel. (laughs) (laughs) So I I had a fantastic year there, uh, really delving into that culture and learning a little bit of flamenco dance and, you know, just following the flamenco guitarists. And so that was mind expanding in one way. But then after that, one of my mentors at UC Berkeley, who I had interviewed for my thesis was Milton Wolf, and he had been the last American commander of the Spanish Civil War. And he was very elderly when I got to know him, but we we became very good friends there in the late 80s. And when I got back from Spain, he he called me and he said in his big gruff voice, he said, Ryan, what are you doing? (laughs) And I said, well, I've just returned and I'm, you know, trying to figure, you know, I was going to be a journalist, of course, but I wasn't yet. And he said, "Uh, you need to sign up. You need to get some assignments and cover this big story that's about to break. Um, He said uh, 200 and some Americans were going to defy the travel restrictions against Cuba, which at the time were quite strong. It's 10 years in prison or $250,000 fine or both. And they were going to travel to Cuba illegally, but very publicly. So I got several different magazines and newspapers to agree to take a story. And through that, I was able to travel there myself as a journalist. And so right off the bat, one of the first people I got to question in my budding journalism career was Fidel Castro. And then, of course, these uh, interesting 
uh, unique uh, Americans and people from other countries that had, you know, gone in support of this breaking of the travel ban. And the goal was kind of a humanitarian end to the embargo because Cuba at that time was really suffering from a lack of um, food and there were massive food shortages and goods shortages. And so anyway, that was kind of what launched me into journalism. And then after that, I covered the Zapatista uh, insurrection uh, in Mexico for several years and did many interviews with the Zapatista leaders. You know, there were all the ski masked rebels down there in, in the south of Mexico that had taken over a large area of that territory. And and they're still quite active down there today, but their mission was um, liberty, democracy, and justice. That was their, the three things that they were calling for from the Mexican government. And again, it was kind of one of these causes that it was very fascinating and it had a human rights element to it that really attracted me. So that, you know, further inspired more work along that vein and other countries, including Cambodia and Mexico, definitely remains a passion for me. Anyway, that's kind of how my career launched. And and then Navica similarly is very human rights focused. It's the whole concept of fair trade, of course, and helping improve the lives of artisans around the world. And between that and my inherent passion for culture and, and arts, you know, it was just a really logical fit to um, help them launch their mission along the same, you know, the same lines. One of the founders of Navica, Armenian Narcessian, she was a notable human rights officer with the United Nations for her whole career. And uh, when her son-in-law, Roberto Milk and uh, Andy Milk, his brother, and one of their best friends, Charles Hatchman, decided to launch Navica in the, you know, this dot-com boom that was going on and really focused on their whole goal was to transform and is to transform the lives of artisans. Armenia was so inspired as the mother-in-law, she actually quit her job right before retirement, which many people thought was crazy, but she um, wanted to, you know, continue to pursue human rights and work with refugees also in, in, in the arts um, and find ways for them to improve their lives through fair trade. So, um, she became one of the founding um, members of Novica as well. And collectively, they've all been and continue to be a major inspiration in my life. And I really look up to Armenia as kind of my ideal of, of uh, the most amazing woman I've ever met. They've become my family, you know, as, as they have for many of the artisans around the world. I would love to talk about that some more. Uh, we're going to take our uh, little break here and we'll be right back with Catherine and talk more about Novica and the founders. This is Heartstock. Welcome back. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. On a beautiful spring, snowy day in Montana, I hit the road on my way back home from work, and it was uh, blizzarding after a 60-degree weekend. Um, you never know. You just never know. And hello again, Catherine. We were just talking about the founders. Is there anything else you'd like to share about that story? I I have a feeling and a sense that there might be a little bit more to that. 
Hi, Carol. Uh, yes. Well, uh, gosh, I could talk forever about Armenia. She's just <laughs> the most fascinating woman in the world. And uh, she's worked with refugees all over the world before Navaka as a human rights commissioner. She uh, also was very instrumental in work in El Salvador and Bosnia-Herzegovina during those major conflicts, helping bring peace in those regions, along, of course, with her entire team there. But she was on the ground and in very difficult conditions, you know, uh, her life was filled with death threats and, you know, very um, challenging but meaningful work. And uh, she definitely inspired us all. And her daughter, uh, Milena, um, known as Mina Narcessian uh, in the acting world, she's a, a successful actress. She was one of the founders of Novica as well. She's married to Roberto Milk who's the, the CEO and one of the founders. You know, she grew up on the road with Armenia doing all these human rights missions in incredible places. So it's just the whole idea was inspired by um, a lifetime of activism and um, trying to be the change in the world. And, uh, you know, as travelers, I think all of us who love to travel and who love cultures, arts are such a fundamental part of that. And we're always bringing home something from where we travel to. And that may be, you know, a beautiful textile or an incredible hand-carved mask from Indonesia, incredible, you know, throne stool from Ghana, Africa. We, We try to bring that piece of our experience back into our lives. And so certainly Armenia and Milena, having lived that life and having always brought things home and always loved meeting the artisans everywhere they met, they went. And likewise, Roberto and his brother Andy had grown up in a missionary family, and um, Roberto's half Peruvian, so he had spent a lot of time going back and forth to Peru, and also another founder, Jose Cervantes in Mexico. That was a, a very tight group of friends that were all international travelers who just all happened to be equally impassioned about world arts and cultures. So they were young when they launched Navica. They had graduated from Stanford, uh, three or four of those founders, and had done their internships and started working out in the real world and, you know, getting into the dot-com world, which was at the time what was happening. And so they, you know, put their heads together trying to figure out how they could help change the world and do it in a realm that was already a great passion of theirs, which was arts and culture. And so something like this just hadn't been done. You know, now we have Etsy, for example, which had not launched at that time, um, which is a very different platform, but it's a platform where you can buy from artisans, not so much in remote areas like Navica focuses on because of the challenges of shipping, for example. I mean, if a customer here meets an artisan online, for example, in Guatemala, uh, it's it's challenging to figure out how to get that beautiful handmade tapestry shipped and delivered or hand-blown glassware delivered, you know, from uh, Guatemala to, let's say, New York City. And the cost of direct shipping is extraordinary nearly you know prohibitive for most people and then you know how do you know if this artisan is legitimate or if they're going to be able to pack and ship adequately so what um, the founders decided to do was to set up artisan empowerment hubs in each of the regions of the world where we first launched and we continue to spread and, and open more where artisans could bring their goods where we would you know, systematically photograph them in you know high quality photos showing all angles 
uh, universal measurements. We would interview the artisans for both for their own biographies that we'd share and photograph them, but also interview them about the cultural significance, about the works of art that they were bringing to us to sell. And then we, you know, were our empowerment hubs were able to put all that up online for the artisans and handle all shipping and returns and direct work with the customers so that language barriers were no longer an issue. So that's, you know, how Navica was designed as a unique platform. And, and we've continued to grow, really focusing mostly, again, on regions of the world where artisans don't, to this day, have sufficient access to online commerce. We've just, um, in fact, just opened two new artisan empowerment hubs. One is in Armenia. And uh, we're super excited about that one. And uh, we've just got a few artisans online there now, but are hoping to onboard many, many more in the months ahead. And we also just launched Central Asia. Both of those impact hubs were in partnership with a wonderful through uh, grant assistance from USAID and also from the International Trade Center, uh, which is um associated with the United Nations. So we're super excited about bringing the Central Asian artisans in also. And we're just starting to see their products listed. And it's just so different than the Asian, African, and uh, Latin American products that we've had for the last 23 years that, you know, we're so eager to see what pops up tomorrow <laughs> on our um, platform. And how many hubs are there? We're at 10 right now with those two opening up. So let's see, Guatemala, Mexico, uh, Peru, Central Asia, and Armenia. We have one in West Africa and Thailand and Indonesia. Hmm. I think we're in all 10 of them. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so imagine all the artisans. I mean, our, we work with thousands of artisans. And again, every single one is featured with their biography and their photo and stories about each product that they list. So you can read about all of this online. And then I think our impact, yeah, what's it called? The Our Impact Group now, which includes the artisans and their dependents. So they're the family members they support. We are up to 75,000 people now as our, our total, you know, of course we want to reach many, many more, but uh, we continue to steadily but slowly expand. So is the company solely bootstrapped by the founders or did you have investors early on? When we first launched, uh, we had uh, Roberto Milk, one of our founders. He um, went out and got in several investors that uh, helped launch initially. And then within our first year of launch, we brought in National Geographic, um, which was just such a logical pairing. And they became a, a major investor, I think almost a 50% investor in Navica. And they really helped us grow and thrive. And of course, the co-branding with National Geographic helped bring such gravitas and um, you know trust to this new dot-com that we were launching. Uh, we worked with them for many, many years. We still produce the National Geographic catalog, which is now just shifted names from National Geographic to Navica. And National Geographic, the company National Geographic has sold several times. So it's sold um, and and we've um, now we're independent. But for most of our life, we were under the wing of National Geographic, which was also, of course, so exciting for all of us who grew up, you know, devoted mm -hmm. to the National Geographic pages. I, I got to go to the headquarters, uh, National Geographic headquarters in Washington, D.C. a few times for meetings and, you know, got to meet my photographic idols. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> people that had written, you know, stories that I that had influenced me as a child. So, mm. um, yeah, it's just been a fascinating journey for everybody involved. And how about your impact? I keep coming back to the Grameen model of empowering women. Is this similar? Is it help us wrap our heads around how are people's lives impacted? I, I imagine it's enormous. Well, in the same way they are by fair trade in that, you know, Navica is fair trade and there are many other wonderful purveyors of fair trade products. And the whole idea is that artisans are earning a realistic world marketing price for their goods. They're not being taken advantage of um, by the traditional channels through all these multiple layers of middlemen that always stood between the artisan and the end purchaser. So, uh, you know, number one through fair trade, one the other way that Navica is so significant um, in impacting artisans' lives is because artisans are no longer anonymous. So, you know, historically, if we went shopping and fell in love with some beautiful rug from, let's say, India, that you might see in a beautiful home goods store in your local town or in a, you know, maybe a major metropolitan area, and you, you know, you might be might be able to learn a little bit about the history of that rug and maybe even what region of India it was woven in, but you're never going to learn the name of the artisan and find out who they are and what inspired them and maybe what their family legacy in, in, in weaving is. And so through Navika, each artisan has their own page and has their own collection featured. And again, you read their biography, learn about the artisan, their name is attached to it. When you get that package delivered directly to your door from a remote region of the world, um, by us, so you know, you know, it's going to arrive safely and securely. You open it and you find a note, you know, a handwritten postcard from the country of origin, and and a keepsake, a really pretty keepsake card with the artisan's name on it. So, you know, for example, I love to buy art from you know paintings from some of our artisans, and so I'll always staple that to the back of the framed painting when I get it done. Mm. And, you know, so that the history also lives on with these pieces. Oh, and earlier I mentioned about how, you know, shipping is so prohibitive if we're, us if we're trying to, you know, usually negotiate directly with an artisan in a far off country, how on earth to get that item around the world. But uh, one of the keys to Navica, and this was part of our logistic platform that was very cutting edge um, at the time in 2000 was that, so everything is direct ship, but we were able to consolidate ship. And that's what made it economically feasible for you to buy, let's say, uh, a beautiful necklace from the Andes of Peru. And you might pay $3 in shipping, or we might be able to offer free shipping on occasions. This would never be able to happen if we weren't able to, you know, once a week consolidate all the orders, ship them all at once. They arrive at, you know, U.S. debarkation hubs, if that's the right word for it. And then all those big, bigger um, parcels are split open and they've already been uh, addressed and they just shoot out via FedEx or UPS to customers all over the country. So yeah. we're able to get them into the U.S. relatively cheaply. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been really a key to the success of Navica. And how might folks find you, Catherine? Well, at, at Novica, so that's um, N-O-V like Victor, I-C-A dot com, Novica dot com. And then um, be sure if you visit to, we have a blog, which is I write a lot of the stories for, which um, is very informative about arts and cultures and 
we have a lot of people that love following that and of course meeting all the artisans and uh, be sure to watch you know if, if you visit I I always encourage people to watch videos and see many of the artisans we've been able to post videos of them at work so you can actually see how they create a hand-blown vase in Mexico or you know the chief carver for the king of the Ashanti nation in West Africa he hand carves thrones and you can actually watch him making these throne stools that are actually quite popular as low seats mm. i have a couple in my house and mm. it's just fascinating fascinating thank you so much for being on heartstock and sharing your story and the the story of nautica just really appreciate it oh it's our pleasure mm-hmm. and we shall be back again next week in the meantime peace and we'll see you then as I Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. But on the other side.